Maybe I'll start with uh, something someone sent me a while back. And uh, there's a description of three stores on the main street in town. And they all are side by side. There's no space between them. And they're all selling the same type of merchandise. So one day the owner of the store at one end put up this sign saying, Rock Bottom Prices. And this prompted the storekeeper at the other end to hang up a sign reading, Lowest Prices in Town. So this put the owner of this middle store kind of in a confused state because all these aggressive maneuvers are happening. And he had a bright idea and he put up his own sign which proclaimed, Main Entrance. <laughs> so... That's a little bow to the uh, what, retail sales and the economy and so on. <laughs> so I think we're all aware of this kind of pre-inaugural week energy, and um, it's hard to live in this area and not feel it live anywhere. And also there's this kind of a dialogue I hear a lot, which is um, really how to, to do with this world is really a mess, and wow, there seems to be hope. So just to speak to the mess side of it, that there's a... because there's a question, really, that is under that, which is, is there some evolving of consciousness in this world? I mean, some people really believe there is, and some don't. But is there an evolve? Is there, like, some gen... and some deep way, even though it's pretty crazy, is there some kind of waking up collectively? Now, first I'll speak to the collective trance, where it's clear that there's a a tremendous amount of ignorance, which is um, just to name the the anguish that so many of us feel in the cycles of violence that keep going, and what's happening in Gaza, and the pain for all, you know, without, without taking a political position, just the pain of that. And then close in, how many people, not necessarily those in the middle classes, they're feeling stressed, but how many people are really, are really right now, um, their lives are, are in a very deep way, um, they're experiencing the fear and suffering of being over the edge economically. And then the scariness of what's happening to the earth, which sometimes doesn't stay front and center when our attention goes elsewhere. A friend of mine just came back from the Arctic, and she had taken pictures of polar bears. And, and just to know, it, it's, it's estimated that if there's a continuation in terms of the melting of ice sheets by 2050, how many will be gone? It's just um, these beautiful, noble creatures. It's just really, really heartbreaking. So, so there's this collective trance, and the Buddhists sometimes describe it as coming out of this, this ignorance or ignoring really who we are, this forgetting this forgetting of our belonging, this forgetting of our connectedness, this forgetting of the awareness and the love that's really what we are. And in that forgetting, what happens is there's a sense of, I'm separate and I need more, and then the greed takes over. And some of you might have read the article about the kind of an unregulated economy when testosterone sets in, there's this risk-taking that just spirals out of control, the greed of me and what I need is extreme. The entire economy crashes. We see the disease of speed, and it just seems to get speedier and speedier. And this is something that we know in our personal lives. I've spoken a lot about when we are racing, our hearts harden. 
And there's that, that understanding that the Chinese have of busyness being heart-killing. So we speed along. And one friend of mine a couple of days ago said, he's just going to stop doing email other than an hour every few days and, and he's going to handwrite all his letters as a kind of a, a rebellion against speed. One of my favorite cartoons I've shared with some of you has this family in this desert and they're on camels, the children on one and the parents on one and all their belongings on the other. And um, you see the father leaning back, you know, looking back at the son and saying to his son, will you stop asking if we're almost there for crying out loud? We're nomads, you know. <laughs> There's this sense of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Do we ever just say, okay... It's just this. We're not on our way somewhere else. Just this. So we've got this speedy culture. And then we have the self-medicating that we all keep putting ourselves in a trance. And I look at email and the web as one of the main ways we do it. I also see how we do it continuously with substance. We all know that. We're, we're always trying to in some way get more comfortable. I was at a conference some years ago and I, just to say that I feel like there's many medications and psychotropic medications that are absolutely life-saving for people including some of the antidepressants so some people it really makes a difference but anyway there was this poster at this conference and it said if there was Prozac back then and it had a picture of um, Mark saying sure we could fix capitalism we just tweak it a bit and then you have Edgar Allan Poe He's listening out the window and he's going, oh, hello, birdie, you know. <laughs> so there's a sense of how much we're trying, we kind of leave the mystery and leave presence and stay addicted to all our occupations. So on the side of it's a mess, there's a collective trance and it's speedy and it's greedy and it's violent and it's scary. It's scary. And then there's, and this is part of this pre-inaugural sense, there is an amazing resurgence of hopefulness. And while it, it sometimes seems like it's embodied in, oh, we get a new administration, it's, it's much deeper than that. And that's not to say there aren't qualities of Obama the man or the policies or this or that that might reflect a kind, this kind of shift in human consciousness. But there is something in us that senses the possibility of an awakening out of the egotism that keeps saying, let's do more for me or I'm going to react to this and get back this person or this country a shift from that to a sense of really belonging to the whole and acting on behalf of the whole so I'd like to um, read you a poem by Rumi And he says, this is how a human being can change. There's a worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly he wakes up, call it grace, whatever, something wakes him and he's no longer just a worm, he's the entire vineyard. And the orchard too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. There's a worm addicted to eating grape leaves and suddenly he wakes up call it grace, whatever something wakes him and he's no longer just a worm he's the entire vineyard and the orchard too 
the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. So there's a reason that um, a lot of us cry whenever John Lennon's Imagine comes on. How many of you cry? I cry. Okay, I just wanted to see if I was alone in that. Thank you. Two hands for one person. There's something in us that yearns for trusting in and participating in this evolution of consciousness where we get that we're the whole vineyard and the fruit and the trunks and we start making our, our, our decisions and our words and our life the compass of our heart is aligned with, with really wanting to nourish that belonging wanting to look at another and see in the eyes of the other that same uh, longing and goodness and spirit wanting to recognize when another's struggling and, and have our inclination being oh, what do you need? not that need to devour, to feed me, to have more for me. We have a yearning for that kind of a world. There was an article in the Washington Post uh, that had to do with... um, it was describing how many people commented on Obama's kind of laid-back non-aggressive style in campaigning and that some people were worried about it but others found it you know, to be kind of reflective of a bit of the spirit of um, more cooperative, less antagonistical. But whether or not that's the case, they had, they, this article was about Hawaii and it was describing aloha, the word aloha and there's a little bit like namaste and every culture has its version. Aloha means breath of life it also means unity, it means humility, it means kindness, and a few patience, a few other things. And they described how Hawaii, because it's surrounded by so many thousands of miles of the Pacific Ocean, how um, everyone on the island has, there's a more awake sense of interdependence. You get it more there. To survive means you have to get, to get along some. And so one of the quotes in the article is that islanders behave differently than mainlanders, that on an island competition is not rewarded as well as it is elsewhere. You learn to understand that everyone is critical to the success and survival of that space and to get over your squabbles quickly. So to resolve disagreements, some of the locals employ an indigenous practice called ho-opo-no-pono, which means make things right through discussion and forgiveness. So there's a sense, maybe just that it's part of our evolutionary capacity to, to lean towards cooperation and forgiveness and sensing we're all part of the same universe or web of life. That's part of our potential. And what's interesting is that what we've been calling mainlanders, well, our world's gotten smaller. We're becoming more like islanders. And, you know, I was reflecting how um, if we lived in D.C. area a few generations ago, if we wanted to go to Glen Echo Park, that was a major weekend expedition. Like, you'd spent the weekend getting there. I mean, I've been reading, because I used to live right pretty near there. So people didn't go to Stratton for a weekend to ski, and they didn't go to the Bahamas for a weekend. You know, it was like, you know, it was further away. But it's closer now. And now we don't go because we can't afford it, but, you know, <laughs> but we recently were. 
And um, so the globe is shrunk. Like in a single day, you can get food to anyone starving on this planet, maybe, depending on if, you know, there's not other people trying to stop you. And in a day, you can drop a bomb and destroy any city on this planet. I mean, we're all very, very close in. And when one economy falls, the others go with it. And when one nation pollutes, the winds carry it elsewhere. I was hearing how one of the things that prevents one country in the Middle East from nuclear bombing another is just that the trade winds, it wouldn't work because the trade winds would just carry the radiation back. So that's interdependence. It's sad that it's framed that way. But here's a nicer framing of it. The Iowa corn farmer, whose corn always took first prize at the state fair, had the habit of sharing the best uh, seeds from the corn with all the farmers in the neighborhood. When asked why, he said, well, it's really a matter of self-interest. The wind picks up the pollen and carries it from field to field. So if my neighbors grow inferior corn, the cross-pollination brings down the quality of my own corn. That's why I'm concerned that they plant only the very best. So we're getting to be more like an island. Thich Nhat Hanh says, we inter-are. It's becoming more, more clear. And uh, another, this is a Russian astronaut. He said, after an orange cloud formed as a result of a dust storm over the Sahara and caught up by air currents, reached the Philippines and settled there with rain, I understood that we are all sailing in the same boat. When there is this evolution of consciousness and we viscerally get that we belong to each other, there are several qualities of heart that emerge. And I want to emphasize tonight uh, two particular interrelated qualities. And um, one of them we don't talk a lot about here. And yet the more I reflect on it, and it's been kind of recent that I've really been bringing it into my own meditation, the more I get how intrinsic it is to the awakened heart, and that is the quality of humility. There's a, um, a saying, be noble, we come from the stars. Be humble, we're made of earth. And I think this evolution of consciousness is kind of this awakening to get that we're from the stars, meaning that we're stardust or we're, we're awareness, we're the fertile void. The whole universe comes out of this awareness, this radiance of being. We're from the stars, so be noble. In other words, really sense the vastness and mystery of who you are. That vastness and mystery, if we stay connected with it, we can see it in each other. Not have a self-own it. It's not like, oh, am I grand and vast and mysterious? Oh, boy. You know, it's not that. It's just to sense the mystery and sense it everywhere through all these life forms. And also to sense in in this humility, and it's not a humility that's degrading, but that we actually are of the earth, we belong to each other, we're made of the same conditioning, we all have all the weather systems moving through us. You know, we have the passions, every one of us, the fears, the shame, the sorrows. Be humble. In other words, it's a kind of an equalizing in a very profound way. It's like... um, I know people that when they take um, different kinds of psychedelic drugs, that's one of the most profound realizations. It's like, I'm not better than a plant. But it's not just an idea. It's like, 
it's just this web of life and we're part of it. So being humble is really waking up out of this sense of a special self. A very close friend of mine, a Buddhist teacher, we, we periodically have catch-ups where we say, you know, what's really up for us. And I remember a couple of years ago he said, you know, that one of the, the major challenges that he was discovering was the sense of needing to be special. And I remember hanging up the phone and going, oh, wow, yeah, this need to be special. And I've written a lot about the trance of unworthiness. It's hand in hand with this trance of specialness, of importance. In fact, for most of us, we're swinging all the time. You know, sometimes things are a certain way and we're bad, we're ashamed, we're not doing it right, we're failing. And other times there's a sense of being superior to others, entitled, important, special. And it's all an expression of the trance of self. I am a separate self and it's not just the nobility of I'm made of the stars, it's the sense of something is very special about this centralized of the universe person. And in other moments this centralized unit person in this universe is like the lowest of the low. We swing. Humility steps out of that swing entirely to just sense beingness and this conditioning's going on and we belong to each other. You know, we had a, um, our New Year's retreat and we have had a several other retreats at Seton Center, which is a Catholic center in Maryland. And one of the icons has an inscription uh, under it which talks of the Sacred Heart of Christ. And the inscription is, I am meek and humble of heart. Which is a very famous line, of course. I am meek and humble of heart. So one of the men at the retreat um, had seen this inscription and started making his meditation Okay, so what does it mean this moment to be humble of heart? I'm going to invite you to do it, of course, in a few moments. But what does it really mean to be humble of heart? And when we had an interview, we practiced together, and I said, okay, in this moment, you know, what's that experience? And you can sense it yourself if you just, you know, what does it really mean to be humble of heart? And for him, he began weeping because in his life he became so accustomed to this swing from feeling kind of arrogant and like in some way intellectually superior and successful and, and yet feeling also how that created distance a distance that was really painful from others including very close people and, and underneath that arrogance was shame of I'm really not a good person because if you're beginning to wake up that arrogance feels embarrassing Hence, then you shift. It's like, I'm a special, important, good person, I'm a spiritual person, I'm helping others to, oh, mm. And then the shame of, of really thinking, oh, aren't I good? Well, that was what he was in. So the meditation, okay, I am humble of heart. The reason he started weeping was because it was true. He realized that that experience of being humble of heart was more the truth of who he was than his arrogant, grandiose self or his ashamed self. 
And there was a freedom from selfing. Humble of heart, just, there was just this heart. It wasn't even a self-owning it. So take a moment, if you haven't already. Because I find this is a reflection that can help us wake up out of either the trance of unworthiness or the trance of entitlement and I'm right or righteousness to something very, very sweet and freeing and whole. So in this pause, begin by arriving so that you feel yourself right here. There's no meditation that is authentic, that doesn't begin with a quality of hereness. Just give yourself permission to relax a bit. Just to feel the movement of the breath. Be aware of the sounds around you and the space you're in. And you might let the words, I am humble of heart, or just the inquiry, what does it mean this moment to connect with a, with a humility or a sense of a humble heart? And see if you can sense the space that comes up, that opens up. the inclusion, the humble heart, how inclusive it is. What a relief it is, because it just allows us to put down that burden of an important self, just humble of heart. You might bring to mind something that's very beautiful, a beautiful place. And just as you're imagining that sense, okay, humble of heart, how does this humility or humble of heart allow me to really feel the wonder, the beauty? begin to sense how the space of the humble heart actually is what, it's kind of almost the precondition to wonder, because we're not all absorbed in a self, there's just this open receptivity to beauty. How, being humble of heart, how do we then regard birth or death? when we're in that consciousness. Just the mystery of belonging to this universe and being humble of heart. I want to read you, as you're reflecting, the words of Chief Seattle, this great 
chief, he uttered these words a century and a half ago in response to the U.S. government's decision to buy or take his people's lands. And just listen to this. This is kind of the wisdom behind a humble heart. How can you buy or sell the sky, the warmth of the land? This idea is strange to us. If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, every mist in the dark woods, every clearing and humming insect is holy in the memory and experience of my people. All things share the same breath. We will consider your offer to buy the land. I will make one condition. The white man must treat the beasts of this land as his brothers. What is man without the beasts? If all the beasts are gone, man would die from a great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts soon happens to man. All things are connected. This we know. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. This we know. All things are connected like the blood which unites one family. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. Man does not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand of it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. Sensing how this awareness of our connection then could lead to taking care of our lives, of each other, and our world. So just to open your eyes and take the next step now and look at really how this quality of humility, of recognizing interdependence really leads to um, the capacity to move our world to peace, to really awakening a meaningful compassion. And I'm spending time on, it, on the word humility and humbleness because we have an arrogant culture there's a lot of entitlement. This is the shadow masculine. Um, and it's in many societies, a kind of machismo where the, we put people in power that are often um, people that want to have power over. There's a sense of valuing, domineering, like we know best and we should go and change other people. There's a kind of jingoism. The, the classic one is having somebody say, you know, God love America. You know, well, how about God is the love that lives through all beings. May that love bless all beings in all societies. But really, can we live in a peaceful world if in some way there's an identity that makes me special or my country special? Are my sexual preference the right one? Are my race the better one? So this arrogance, this lack of humility goes on every level to create separation and it's the foundation of war. If there's any self-centeredness, me special, that means you are not so special and it means it's okay for me to try to control you. It's okay for me to kind of try to oppress you. It's okay for me to try to, to kill and rule you, you know. It gives permission. 
So it feels very, very um, compelling that we wake up to our own ways of getting caught in that self-centeredness. And one way is to just reflect on this humble heart, just even the reflection, because it's true that in our essence this heart is humble, and by reflecting on it, it helps us to connect back with that truth. It also, in between, reveals to us how we've been caught in selfing. When I'm in an argument with somebody, or a disagreement, and I shared one last week with you, when I'm thinking I'm right, as soon as I say, oh, this humility of heart, what I first get is how this heart is feeling right and separate and above and better. So first it shines a light on the selfing. But if we stay with it, because we want to be free, because we want to be at home with who we are, we come home to the truth of we're connected, we're not better, we're not worse, and the only thing worth seeding in any moment is love. So this has everything to do with resolving conflicts internationally. That if there can be this quality of self-reflection, this waking up out of our specialness, we can begin to listen to each other, to speak truth, and to develop an understanding that can wake us up out of conflict. And that might be idealistic, but we're seeing it in certain isolated places, and that's where the hope comes. So I want to share one story that really touched me in this way. So over the last bunch of years, there have been these peace walks, and um, one of the main places has been, they've been organized um, amongst Israelis and Palestinians, and they're Um, organized by different mindfulness communities and Vipassana communities. And the whole purpose is to wake up out of the trance of separation, out of the trance of I'm right, you're wrong, and come to that place of love that can heal. This is a story from one of those walks. It was organized by, um, as I mentioned, a Vipassana community. And this is a an email that was sent by an Israeli woman who described her experience and sent it to a friend of this sangha's and um, hence it got to me. So she was on this walk and she was a few minutes ahead of the the group and it was close to the Jaffa gate and she encountered a Palestinian woman and when she encountered this woman had had seen a, a conversation with an elderly Arab man and she felt the conversation that the man had been insulted so she was enraged by that and she turned her rage on this Jewish woman who was part of the walk but ahead of the group so now I'm going to read you what she wrote so she, ju- she had jumped to the conclusion that an old Arab is under attack and rushed in a frenzy to rescue him she yells some insults at the at one Jewish woman, and then at me. It's like a bomb ready to explode. I try to explain to her what's going on, but she's furious with me, screaming out her hatred and her despair and her pain. This is Palestine accusing Israel, and at this moment I represent Israel to her. She shouts out her sorrow about what's going on now in the territories, the military incursions into Palestinian towns. She talks in particular about Jenin, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, where some terrible fighting is now taking place. She has, oh, this was about five years ago, by the way. She has family and friends there, and she says that our soldiers are, at war, are war criminals. She is convinced that we want to kill them all. Why do we hate them so much? They're not responsible for the Holocaust. Why should they be paying the price? She tells me about the refugees and their constant suffering for which we are responsible 
pointing at another Jewish woman, she assures me that this Sephardic woman was treated with honor as a human being in an Arab country from where she comes, and look at how she behaves with the Palestinians now. It goes on and on. She shouts and spews her hatred for Israel at me. I don't try to argue with her at all. I don't show any reaction to all these accusations. I feel a huge compassion and an intense need to listen to her, only to listen. My patience is nourished by understanding that behind this overwhelming hatred is a deep suffering and a pain aggravated by the present situation of war. It must express itself. It must express itself in some way so that healing can take place and I'm ready to listen to what appears to me as the worst accusations without reacting. I'm aware that what reinforces my strength at this moment is that I have absolutely no doubt that the suffering and pain of the Israeli people is not less real or legitimate. It's not an issue of who's right and who's wrong. I feel very calm and peaceful inside. I know that it's the only way to calm her fury in that moment. I let her express herself for a long time without interrupting her. As she continues to shout at me, I tell her that she has no need to speak so loudly because I'm listening to her with all my attention. At the same time, I find myself caressing her arm, and she lets me do it, and progressively lowers her voice while continuing to let her despair overflow. She says to me, Do you understand why some of us come and commit suicide among you? You kill us anyway, so why not kill you at the same time? She even mentions the possibility of coming and blowing herself up out of despair. I tell her softly that I don't want her to die. Nobody should come to that decision. We all suffer on both sides. She goes on and on claiming the Zionists only want to get rid of the Palestinians. I tell her, you see, I'm a Zionist and I don't want to get rid of you. I wish we could live together as good neighbors. She listens to me. She tells me about the demonstration that took place the week before. She complains about Jewish organizations who took part in it. Then she asks me to donate some money to buy phone cards for Palestinians who need them. I give her some money. At this stage, the conversation is quite normal between us. She doesn't shout anymore. She's even able to listen to me. She's almost calm when I notice the people of the walk approaching us slowly at the top of the street. They're in a line, a hundred of them, one after another, walking in silence, slowly, quietly, aware of each step, creating an atmosphere of peace and safety around them. They're very present. They radiate calm and warmth. I point them out to her and explain that this is the reason I came here, to join a walk of peace in which Palestinians and Israelis are together. I tell her about the walk, its message of coexistence and peace, peace at every step, here and now. I suggest that she come into the line with me. She hesitates and rejects my offer. At this point, they reach us. Several Palestinian friends of mine I know come and shake my hand warmly as they go by. A young woman very active in the group of rapprochement between the two peoples approaches her and gives her a kiss. It appears they know each other. I notice she is very moved by the walk and the atmosphere it radiates. She seems to me calmer and calmer, nothing like the furious woman I met only several minutes before. The end of the line passes us by and I want to join it. Again I invite her and again she declines. I tell her that I understand and respect her decision. Before I go, I tell her, I am sure that someday we will succeed in building peace between us. She smiles and replies, me too. Then to my total surprise, she comes close to me and kisses me on my cheeks. She walks alongside the line for a while. She tells me that she likes this walk, that it makes her feel very good, it gives her relief, and that her moon is much better now. I'm very, very moved. I feel overwhelmed by this encounter, especially by its unexpected ending.
a seed of peace has been sown. So there's an inquiry as to what is it, whether it's people that are directly part of groups at war or us in our own lives, wherever we've got conflict, wherever we've got conflict, wherever we have someone that's just not in our hearts. What is the process by which, like that worm, you know, we wake up to something larger? that we're able to remember our innate goodness, that we're from the stars and remember our belonging with each other. So rather than having to be right, rather than having to have something our way, we care more about this waking up together, that there be peace, that there be a free flowing of love, that all the beasts and the trees and the polar bears and the peoples on this planet find a way of really loving and awakening together. One of the most powerful parts of this reflection of humble of heart is that we get that there's no way to be kind unless that's there. Have you ever felt kindness from someone who is in a, in, kind of in that self-arrogant place? Kindness comes from an understanding of our connection. This sense of connection is what gives rise to kind action. The poet Haviz writes this, a man talks to Haviz about a profound enlightening experience, a vision of God, experience of merging with light and love. And then he asks Haviz, was it real? This was Haviz's response. Do you have any goats? Do you have a wife, children, siblings, parents, friends? The realness of that experience shows itself through the kindness you express with each being in your life. So as we begin to wake up, we realize that there's no one that's exempt. It's not that we're really kind and open to some and then others are in some way outside of our heart. There's a a story that one woman wrote. She says, during my second month of nursing school, our professor gave us a pop quiz. I was a conscientious student and breezed through the questions until I read the last one. What is the name of the woman who cleans this school? Surely this is some kind of a joke. I'd seen the cleaning woman a number of times. She was tall, dark-haired, in her fifties, but how would I know her name? I handed in the paper, leaving the last question blank. Another student asked, will the last question count towards the grade? Absolutely, said the instructor. In your careers you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care even if all you do is smile and say hello. I've never forgotten that lesson. I also learned her name was Dorothy. And this is uh, Barbara Kingsolver. She says, here's what I've decided. The very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. What I want is so simple, I almost can't say it. Elementary kindness. So there's something in us that as we kind of 
reflect about the times, more and more part of this evolution of consciousness is that we get that it's not it, it's going to take place in policies and big decisions and the change of administration and as part of this evolution of consciousness it's really how are we choosing in this moment or this very evening to really live from a quality of awakeness and when we leave here are we going to see the others that are here as strangers our friends but ignore some or, or is there going to be a quality of open heartedness that really with maybe a few people you've never spoken before in some way there's a oh here we are we're on this boat together on this earth is there that quality where we begin to feel that field of what we are includes each other is there that quality this description of um, metta or love as being something that truly arises not in a conditional way for just some people but out of a heart that recognizes we really are in it together and then like the island rather than competing there's a sense of we really want to see each other happy I remember a story about the Special Olympics this is an old one this was at the track and field meet and one participant was Kim Peek, a brain-damaged, severely handicapped boy racing in the 50-yard dash. Kim was racing against two other athletes with cerebral palsy. They were in wheelchairs. Kim was the lone runner. As the gun sounded, Kim moved quickly ahead of the other two. Twenty yards ahead and ten yards from the finish line, he turned to see how the others were coming. The girl had turned her wheelchair around and was stuck against the wall. The other boy was pushing his wheelchair backwards with his feet. Kim stopped, went back, and pushed the little girl across the finish line. The boy in the wheelchair going backwards won the race. The girl took second. Kim lost. Or did he? The crowd that gave them all a standing ovation didn't think so. So as we enter this inaugural week, it's really um, part of the invitation of the times to sense in our own lives how we can be part of this, this evolution, how we can really do that reflection, humble of heart, that we really do belong together, that we're part of this together. And then that we're from the stars, it gives us the freedom to really let that, that shine, that radiance come through. Thich Nhat Hanh, who, by the way, is one of the great inspirations behind these peace walks and this sense of interdependence. Um, he described the boat people, that this was at the time of the Vietnam War, and he said that the boat people said that every time their small boats were caught in storms, they knew their lives were in danger. But if one person on the boat could keep calm and not panic, that was a great help for everyone. People would listen to him or her and keep serene, and there was a chance for the boat to survive the danger. Our earth is like a small boat. Compared with the rest of the cosmos, it's a very small boat and it's in danger of sinking. We need such a person to inspire us with calm confidence, to remember our belonging, to tell us and live from that sense of love and belonging. And who is that person? The Mahayana Buddha Sutras tell us that you are that person. If you are yourself, if you are your best, then you are that person. Only with such a person, kind, calm, lucid, aware, will our situation improve. I wish you good luck. Please be yourself.
be that person. So let's take a, a few moments to pause and connect with that which is right here. Let yourself relax some and in a gentle way sense the life that's here. A simple listening to the sounds. Maybe a little bit of a letting go through the body so you can just feel the sensations of sitting here. Feel the movement of the breath. And just to ask yourself in this moment what it means to be humble of heart. You might sense in your life where it would help to remember, where it would help to reconnect with this simplicity of being open-hearted, of being free of that specialness or rightness or unworthiness, and just to rest in a really inclusive, open tenderness. where in your life this sense of a humble heart might lead to more kindness. May these hearts and minds awaken to realize our connectedness with each other and all beings. May all awaken to sense interdependence and to live from kindness. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace on earth and everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.